Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. is the Water Conservation Supervisor for the Town of Castle Rock, Colorado. We spoke regarding some of the impacts that drought conditions are having in the West and what his town is implementing to conserve water that may begin to affect residential construction across the country. Over the past 20 years, on average, 800 single-family homes and 125 multifamily units have been constructed each year within the Town of Castle Rock. The town has extensively surveyed its community and has shown that residents support more stringent water conservation measures. Therefore, the town is planning to retain effective water conservation strategies, such as interior and exterior water conservation measures for newly constructed homes, while adopting new strategies, including front yard Colorado Xeriscape low water planting requirements for new development, which eliminates the use of turf grass in front yards and limits backyard planting of turf to 500 square feet. In addition, they're planning the elimination of non-functional turf grass, primarily in common spaces of apartments, condominium, and townhome complexes governed by homeowners associations. They define non-functional turf grass as areas with turf where play or recreation activities cannot or do not take place. Castle Rock Water is continuing to work with community builders and industry partners to create more water efficient homes and neighborhoods and is currently studying a gray water recycling system for homes which takes shower water and utilizes it for the flushing of toilets in addition to a water monitoring system for the whole home. Water is becoming a bigger issue in home construction, and I hope this episode will help us think about the importance of water conservation in addition to energy conservation. Please enjoy our conversation, and if you do, please consider liking it in your favorite podcast platform so others can find it as well. Thank you. I'm here with Rick Schultz, the Water Efficiency Supervisor for the town of Castle Rock, Colorado. Thanks for joining us on the BuildCast today, Rick. Good morning, Robbie. Happy to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. So almost every week now, it seems like I'm seeing a news story about the water crisis in the West. Um, And it seems to be focused more on the Colorado River Basin and we're here on the front range of Colorado. But um, I was curious about your thoughts about water in Colorado, in the front range. Castle Rock is a large suburb of the Denver metro area. Um, how are we doing with what, with regards to water uh, for our population here? Well, as, as with all things, there's a lot of variability. Um, you know, every community is handling it a little differently. Um, you know, I can obviously speak for, for our community here in Castle Rock, but, uh, you know, maybe provide a few observations more regionally, but, uh, you know, in Castle Rock, 
just to kind of set the stage, we are, uh, for, for your, those of you watching or listening and maybe don't know where we are, we're about midway between Denver and Colorado Springs, and we're right along the I-25 corridor, so on the south end of Denver. From a water perspective, historically, we have always gotten our water from groundwater, from deep groundwater aquifers um, through a series of wells. And that changed almost 10 years ago. So in 2013, we opened our first water plant that had the ability to uh, treat and deliver surface water. And so since then, since 2013, we have been expanding and, and moving in the direction of uh, increasing the amount of surface water that we're able to take advantage of every year. Right now, we're somewhere in the neighborhood of say 30 to 33% surface water. And then the balance of that's um, say 67 to 70% uh, still dependent on groundwater. But, you know, in even less than 10 years, you know, we've able to transition fairly significant portion, almost a third of our water is now coming from surface water, which is great. Um, reducing the reliance on those wells and those aquifers. Um, where we're headed in the future. Let me ask real quick, um, were yeah. the um, aquifers starting to dry up or or there just wasn't enough water to meet the, the population growth? No, it's not really that. Um, part of the problem, part of the problem with groundwater, I think anywhere you go in any community is that groundwater is a limited resource uh, for us. You know, many of our wells were, you know, couple thousand feet underground and the rate of recharge is very very slow and so you know we they basically call it a non-renewable resource because we're you know anybody that's using groundwater is removing it faster than it's going in okay. and so uh, it's really it's a very limited it's not sustainable it really doesn't have a lot to do with growth or anything or anything else because even if even if the growth stopped, even if there was no more population increase, we still need to move to a more renewable resource like surface water. It's just the reality of groundwater. Okay. And uh, any community that's on that type of a system is facing the same set of challenges. Yeah. And who, how do you determine ownership of uh, water that's under the ground? Well, it's all based on water rights. And as the landowner with the rights to the water, that's um, we're kind of getting into a legal area. I'll, I'll tell you and your listeners, I'm not a lawyer at the water rights. It's not my area of expertise. So I'll keep it very, very general. Um, but for purposes of, of water delivery, we have the water rights, uh, both surface water rights uh, along East Plum Creek and also um, the water rights to uh, the aquifers underneath the town. And when a development comes in, it's interesting to note, uh, generally speaking, they, they need to bring the water to support the development that they're proposing. So in other words, the short way of saying that is development pays for development. And so it doesn't fall on the 
the shoulders of the existing ratepayers. You know, the, if you're going to build 1,200 homes, for example, you've got to bring the water for your development. You've got to show us that you can support that, and then those water rights get turned over to the town as the uh, development occurs, and then ultimately those customers become our customers. Uh, but the developer has already brought us the water to support the development that they're proposing. So uh, I think that's important because a lot of people don't really realize that. Yeah. Is that unusual, do you think, for Castle Rock, or is that pretty common for most municipalities? Well, again, I, as I said, I'm not, I'm not uh, an expert in that area. I would think it would be common. I mean, I would hope it would be common. But I, I don't know for sure. I don't work in other developments or other communities. But I mean, it seems like the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so now you're you're expanding your resource uh, by looking at uh, surface water. And does that mean that uh, the town has built some reservoirs or lakes that they're pulling from? Well, we have we have one small reservoir now. Uh, it's actually north of town up in Sedalia and it's right along uh, it's right along East Plum Creek. We have a diversion structure there along the creek where during times of higher flow we can pull from the diversion structure and either uh, reroute water into the reservoir and then bring it back or we cannot. Uh, we're right in the process of I say the right in the process, it's in the design stage and uh, just getting ready to break ground on the second reservoir, which is going to be adjacent to the first one. They're going to be right together and it'll be larger than the first. It'll have a higher capacity and just similar storage and pump back ability. We have a pipeline from Sedalia to bring the water back. Uh, secondly, we've also got storage space in Ruder Hess reservoir, which is over in Parker. I don't know if you're familiar with Ruder Hess, but that's owned and operated by Parker Water and Sanitation. But we have an agreement with them to uh, use their reservoir for storage. And um, I believe that's 8,000 acre feet or up to 8,000 acre feet that we can store there. And then finally, uh, we're also participating in the uh, Chatfield reallocation project. Uh, which if, if any of you or your listeners have been paying attention to that one, they're increasing the capacity uh, by raising the lake level in Chatfield Reservoir. And so historically, the, the reservoir was built primarily for flood control. And then over the years, they have said, well, we've reevaluated, we've remodeled, we don't really need this much extra space for flood control. And so they're raising the lake level, I believe it's approximately 12 to 12 and a half feet. And that extra space uh, can be used for storage for uh, water supply rather than just exclusively for flood control. So we're also participating in that. So we've got a variety of options that are available for surface water. Okay. So kind of getting back to our uh, original question, uh, they're raising the water level at Chatfield Dam. Um, is there water available to be able to do that? Yeah, it well, it all depends on, again, it depends on the water rights. It depends on the flow of the, of the creek. Uh, our water rights come along uh, 
East Plum Creek. A lot of that is really dependent on snowpack and um, you know the rains that we receive and then where we fall in the order of the water rights. Uh, so yeah, we have been able to uh, we have been able to add some water to it and also into Ruder Hess and also to uh, fill the reservoir in Sedalia. So it just depends on the time of year and the flow in the river or the flow in the creek. Okay. Um, are there the same concerns on the east side of the Rocky Mountains as there is on the west side with regards to um, long-term water availability? Well, I think water is always a concern, you know, especially here in the West. I mean, I, th I think generally speaking, um, you know, even though we don't directly take water from the Colorado River, um, that doesn't mean we're still not affected by it. You know, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a, I don't know what the best way to describe it, but it's uh, obviously been in the news recently for, for good reason. If yeah. you've seen the lakes, if you've seen the rivers, uh, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, it's it's pretty shocking to see it. Yes, yes, for sure. And um, I I thought I told you, but maybe I didn't. Um, I spoke with a woman named uh, Teal Leto. Uh, she has an Instagram page called Western Water Girl, and she's very active in kind of getting the word out about uh, what's happening in the Colorado River Basin and and whatnot and so we we spoke um, a little while ago and she was uh explaining that we're getting to the deadpool level at um potentially at uh lake uh, mead and lake powell uh to that point where they're not gonna the water level is gonna be too low to actually go through uh the dam um generation for electricity and potentially for uh releasing water down down to uh, from lake powell to lake mead there if that happens that'll be uh shocking uh certainly yeah. a historic event um but yeah i hope we don't get there but it's possible yeah yeah now that kind of news is is what i was referring to um hearing you know almost on a weekly basis now on the colorado river side of the of the front range here um on the eastern side um are there um, projections that you're seeing that are either climate change driven or other reasons why we might be expecting um you know less snowpack uh, less water availability in the future well not specifically that I am involved in no. Now I'm not going to say that those conversations aren't happening. I'm just not part of those conversations, so I, I just don't know. Uh, my role uh, specifically would be on more of the end user side, and I work with the customers that are using the water. Uh, I work with everybody from the residential customers to the commercial customers to the HOAs to the the parks and obviously all of the new construction, new residential construction, and we're working a lot with builders. So that's really where I get more involved is on the end use side of things rather than on the supply side. Mm -hmm. So I wish I could talk a little bit more intelligently about the modeling, but I'm not involved in the modeling. 
Yeah, no, that's not a problem. Uh, that actually gets gets us to uh, where I ultimately want to want to go, uh, which is um, I guess the kind of the tie-in between what we were talking about before and then getting into what's what kind of programs you're you're working with is that I'm assuming that the programs that you're working with for are all really water conservation based, and yes. so there there must be just a realization from the town of Castle Rock that water is a precious resource and needs to be managed uh, maybe in a, in a more aggressive way than it has been in the past? Is that, is that the impetus of these types of programs that you're working in? Well, let's start with a, a, a small amount of historical context because as I said, you know, prior to 2013, Castle Rock was completely dependent on groundwater. And so we knew as, as a quote unquote landlocked community, um, we knew that we had to watch out for where our water was going, you know, long before a lot of other communities. And we've, we've had watering restrictions in place since 1985. So, you know, it's a long time. Um, they've been continuously in place every year consistently since 1985 and that was actually for two reasons uh, we, we put those in place for uh, one reason of course is conservation to to not use any more water than we needed but also the other the other side of that is demand management just to flatten that peak peak day demand so it lessens the load on our infrastructure and uh, it's been successful so that's where we started but we've had even landscaping codes, uh, landscaping efficiency measures in place. Uh, I can recall going back into the 90s, the late 90s, as part of our public works documents, we started our own landscape and irrigation criteria manuals back in the mid, say 2004, 2005 range. So, you know, there's, this is nothing new to us. And we just continue to evolve. You know, we just continue to look at things and, and the way we try and approach everything is, you know, what can we do more, better, more efficiently? And, you know, when I talk to somebody, whether it's somebody like you or, or a, a homeowner, it doesn't matter. You know, my, I tell them my goal is simple. My goal is for you to use the least amount of water possible without having a negative impact on your life. That's how I phrase it, short and sweet. Yeah, you know, I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to necessarily feel the pain, but if you don't need it, let's look at a better way of using it. Yeah, yeah. And so as you, you said, uh, you have started some programs that are specific to new construction. Uh, can you explain uh, the connection between um, water and permitting a house and what, what you need to do to, to uh, satisfy the requirements of the city? Sure. Sure. So I'll just kind of be very general. And then if this sparks a follow-up question, we'll just kind of go that way. Perfect. But we've, all, we've always done, and I say always, I mean, probably for the last 15 years, maybe longer, 15 to 20 years, 
we've had a um, dedicated landscape and irrigation plan review person. And so that is a person that is specifically looking at new development, new construction. What are they planning? What are they going to install? And does it make sense? And does it meet our criteria? We've had a, we had a manual. I don't know if you've seen it. I assume you've seen it, but if not, I can provide a link to it later and I'll give it to you. Yeah, but we have, a, we have a criteria manual that covers all of our landscape and irrigation requirements. And these are the minimum requirements. This, this basically says, if you're going to build something here, here are the minimum requirements. And it covers everything. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's just talk about a new home. So for a new home today, they've got to have a Wi-Fi enabled smart controller. They've got to have a rain sensor. The sprinkler heads have to be a minimum of six inches tall with pressure regulation and check valves. And if you look to the most current version that literally just went into effect two weeks ago, it was October 17th, I believe, no turf allowed for new home construction in front yards. So kind of a lot of words there, but no turf allowed new home construction in front yards. And then in backyards, that turf would be limited to a maximum of 500 square feet. Right. And then additionally, back in about 2018, so about four years ago, coming up on five years ago, we implemented a restriction on Kentucky bluegrass. We said no more Kentucky bluegrass for new home construction at all, period. Because even five years ago, I mean, every year we, we take another step, we evolve, we fine tune, you know, we say, okay, what's working, what's not working, what do we need to change, and how can we continue to increase efficiency? Because at the end of the day, you know, we're like a lot of utilities, you know, our, our water use is plus or minus, it's about half indoors and half outdoors. You know, it varies from one year to the next, but, but on average, roughly it's about 50, 50, you know, versus, you know, indoor versus outdoor. So if we can reduce that outdoor demand, if you think about it, if you think about it, that outdoor demand is pretty significant because we're using about 50% of our water outdoors in about 50% of the year. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of water in a short period of time. So yeah, yeah, that's really where we're going to get our biggest bang for the buck is is focusing on outdoors. Uh, so that's where we try and at least currently that's where we focus our efforts. And we have a couple of indoor initiatives that we're working on, but um, outdoors is really has been our focus up to this point. Yeah. So the the turf that you do allow is a. Is it a special blend, uh, low water turf that is specific to um, Castle Rock or is it readily available? Uh, great question. Uh, no, it is not specific to Castle Rock and yes, it is readily available. Uh, we have, we've had multiple conversations with uh, many turf growers and sod farms around the area and there, it's not difficult. Um, we just say you can't use a straight Kentucky bluegrass, but what we really push people toward 
is an alternative. For example, uh, there's a there's a variety called a Texas hybrid. Um, a Texas hybrid basically being a Texas bluegrass uh, blended with a Kentucky bluegrass. There's many, many different versions of Texas hybrids. Uh, everybody has their own version of it, and they're not all the same. You know, it's it's difficult to compare because there's really no specification. But uh, generally speaking, they, the Texas hybrids are going to use less water for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, they have deeper roots, which is good. Uh, deeper root system allows them to uh, more readily take advantage of naturally occurring water rather than, you know, the supplemental water that we might be applying. And then uh, secondarily, the deeper root system also makes them a little bit more heat resistant and drought resistant. So it still may not be the ultimate answer, but it's a good first step. Yeah. And some of the fescues are good. Uh, a lot of the native grasses are good. It really just depends on what the user wants. Yeah. What is there? If you can think about it in these terms, uh, if your listeners could think about it in, in the terms of their own yard and apply it to their own situation, you know, take a look at your yard and say, what am I going to do with it? You know, do I have dogs? Do I have kids? Do I have, you know, am I going to go out there and, and put up a volleyball net and play on it? You know, everybody has their own different use for their yard. And so therefore there isn't a, a one size fits all answer. But if you just look at your yard, you know, what we like to say is, you know, if the only time you ever walk on your lawn is when you mow it, then do you really need it? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's not for us to say it's, we, we can't answer that question for you, but you should answer that question for yourself. Yeah. And then you're providing parameters uh, now in which a homeowner or a builder has to make some of those decisions, I guess, before they move into the house. They do. So let's circle back to the, uh, the no turf in front yard issue. So yeah. here's how that works. A builder comes into town and he says, I want to build a house or I want to build a community of houses. Great. As part of the building permit application, they are required to also submit a landscape and irrigation plan. And so what will happen is, and we've done this already, it's, this is not new as of October. Uh, the only thing new as of October is the no turf in front yard requirement, but we'll review the plan. We'll look at the landscape and the irrigation plan. We'll make sure that it meets our criteria that I generally outlined a moment ago. And they have to design the whole yard, front, front side and back. They have to design everything as part of the building permit application. That plan gets approved, the permit gets issued, they go out and they build it. Now, the builder has to install the front yard. That's a requirement. They have to install the front yard, which means they're putting in what we call a Colorado scape. And I'm gonna circle back to Colorado scape in just a minute, but I'm gonna tell you why we okay. use that term. But they have to install the front yard. It's optional for them to install the backyard, but they have already designed the backyard and that approved design for the whole yard then sets the water budget for that home. 
And so the water budget is a guideline, if you will, for how much water would be appropriate for, to maintain that landscaping into the future. We're gonna do inspections. We're gonna verify that they installed something that was consistent to the approved plans. And then we're gonna move on. Then the building is done, the permit is closed, and we move on. So when, when the builder doesn't install the backyard, um, the homeowner would be responsible uh, for that. Are you inspecting that as well, or do they have to pull a, a permit to install the, the backyard? There is no separate permit. Um, so that's number one. It, we, there's a couple of ways that we can go down that path. Uh, the first route would be if the builder installed everything, which they have a choice to do that. If they choose to install the whole yard based on the approved plans, then they do qualify for a discount on their system development fees. So there is an incentive for them to install it. Mm -hmm. And, and that was made, that was something that we worked very, very closely with uh, the building community and the, the HBA, the Home Builders Association. And we wanted to make sure of two things. Uh, the first thing we wanted to make sure of is they did have a choice. It was not required that they do the backyard. But the second thing we wanted to also be clear on was we want them to install the backyard and if they choose to install the backyard, we will incentivize them to do that. So there is a fairly significant discount on system development fees if they do the whole yard. If they don't, to your point, if they don't do the backyard, the plan is still provided to the homeowner. And the homeowner is now given this plan and they say, okay, here's the plan. This is what was approved. This is how your water budget has been established. Now, if you can have a choice, now you're the homeowner, you still have a choice. Do you have to install that plan? No, you don't. Your water budget is based on that plan, but you can change it up. You know, again, getting back to the point of everybody's needs are different. Our only real requirement is we don't allow more than 500 square feet of turf in the backyard. Now let's say Robbie comes in and he wants to build a house and he says, I want a thousand square feet of turf in my backyard. Can you do it? Yes, you can. You're only going to get a budget for 500. Yeah. But you can put in a thousand or 1200 or 2000 if you want. It's just that your budget has already been established based on that original plan. And so you need to understand that from a conservation perspective, you may go over your budget. If you go over your budget, your water bill goes up. Okay. So it's, uh, it's your bill, your bill is based off of, um, brackets of, of budget or brackets of use. Yes. There's four tiers. Um, okay. we have a, a tiered water budget rate structure. Uh, tier one is indoor use. Uh, so basically that is established during the winter months of November, December, January, and February. We just use an average of those four winter months and that becomes your indoor budget. And so everybody's indoor budget could be different. You know, if you live by yourself and you're a, a single 
person, a single occupant in your home, theoretically, you're going to use a lot less than your neighbor that might be a family of four or a family of six or whatever. And so the indoor budget is going to be based on your actual use. Okay. Your indoor budget is then your, your actual winter consumption is used for two things. Let's back up. Your actual winter consumption, uh, average winter consumption, is used to set your indoor water budget, and it's also used to set your sewer uh, charge because it's assumed all the water that you're using in the wintertime is also going down the sanitary sewer. And so what comes in also goes out, and it has to be processed on the sewer side. So it has a, a dual purpose. Tier two of your budget is your in-budget irrigation rate or your in-budget outdoor. And that's going to be based again on that plan, on that approved plan. If you go over that, then you're going to go into tier three, which puts you into your excess irrigation tier. And then finally, tier four is an arbitrary anything over and above 40,000 gallons in a month will put you into tier four. And so it's, it's essentially a conservation surcharge and nobody ever gets there unless they exceed 40,000 gallons in a billing, a billing cycle, which is one month. Yeah. And if they had, you know, a thousand or 2000 square feet of grass, is it likely that they would get, get there? Over 40,000? No. Um, I would doubt it. I mean, it, uh, the variability comes into how is that how is that individual homeowner managing their sprinkler system? Yeah. Um, you know, we've had historically, uh, we've had very very large lots. You know, with uh, say 10,000, 15,000 square feet of grass, and they they will regularly go over that 40,000 every single month. Uh, some of the some of the reasons that someone would go over their budget, uh, maybe the grass is too big, maybe maybe the footprint of the turf is too large, maybe they have leaks that have gone undetected, uh, maybe they're just simply overwatering, and it's just not being properly managed. So there's a variety of reasons why somebody would go over their budget, but more often than not, it's it's um, not it's not the footprint. That usually sends them over, especially if it's you know under the new requirements, 500 square feet, yeah. even a thousand square feet. That's not enough. Is the pricing tier four um, high enough to get somebody's attention? It is. Um, I don't have. I could pull it up if you want me to. No, that's fine. I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I mean, that that would seem to be the regulatory way of trying to. Um, harness the water usage in, in that high demand area or right. if there's a, a way to determine that that the system's leaking and that needs to be checked or something like that right right and and it's interesting that you would you'd kind of go in that direction of leaks because uh, we're very very early on in our conversion to the ami system which is a very exciting process for me what's uh, what's ami stand for ami is advanced metering infrastructure and um, what AMI does is it allows for us as a utility to monitor in real time the water consumption at each of our customers. And 
the flip side of that is it, it allows you as the end user to do the same thing. Uh, you can set up notifications, you can set up leak alerts. And uh, right now, for example, if I wanted to know if my, if my house had a leak, I would have to physically go down into my basement and I would have to physically look at the meter and I could observe, I could do that anytime and any of our customers can do that, but most of them don't. But, you know, if you look at the meter and the meter's moving, but, you know, in your head you say, well, I don't have any water on, I'm not watering my lawn, I'm not doing laundry, I'm not doing dishes, etc. But But yet there's movement of the meter, well, you have a leak. I mean, obviously the water's going somewhere. Yeah. And, but most people generally don't do that. You know, most people are not going to take the time to go out there and do that. But what AMI does is through a series of, of real time monitoring, it'll, it'll take, for example, if you have a continuous flow on your meter over a 24 hour period, it'll interpret that as a leak and it'll send you an alert. So instead of waiting, you know, over 30 days, which is our billing cycle, we only read your meter once a month. Instead of waiting, you know, a whole month to get your next bill, you can find out literally within one day instead of one month, which is a huge, huge uh, advancement in leak detection. Yeah. Does Castle Rock own the meter or does the homeowner own the meter? We own the meter as as so, the utility. It is our meter. Yeah. yeah so are so you if, in the, uh, you're in the process of of changing out meters in in your area? Right now, today, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of thirteen thousand meters in the system that are already compatible with AMI. So those meters will not need to be changed. They'll just need to be activated and brought online. Uh, some of the older meters, yes. Uh, we we will be actively replacing, uh, probably starting with the oldest and working forward. Yeah. You know, the older meters are probably in due of, uh, needed to be replaced anyway. Uh, so we're about 50-50, you know, half are compatible, half need to be replaced. Yeah. And do the meters have the ability to meter outdoor water usage and indoor water usage separately? Generally speaking, no. Um, for most homes, they have a single meter that services the property and that single meter uh, does both indoor and outdoor. So we consider that to be a combined meter. Uh, we have a handful, it's, it's not very many, it might be about 800 or so, but we have a handful of homes that were built many, many, many years ago uh, that have two meters, one for inside and one for outside. But that's a, certainly a small percentage of our of our community. Yeah. Is it advantageous or for, for you, the utility to, to be able to meter both separately? Not necessarily. You know, I, th I think that at the end of the day, you can get the information you need um, fairly easily with one meter. Uh, it's just, it really, it, it reduces the number of pieces of, of hardware that we have to maintain. So generally speaking, it's not necessary. Okay. So let's move to indoor water use. Um, what are the requirements uh, from an indoor water perspective? So indoor, indoor water use, uh, you, 
I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that you know this, but I'll state it anyway. Uh, a couple of years ago, Colorado, uh, the state of Colorado passed uh, water sense legislation, and that as part of that water sense legislation, uh, Colorado is now considered a water sense state. And so what that means is any indoor fixtures like showerheads, faucets, toilets, etc., cetera, uh, all have to be water sense labeled in order to be sold and installed in Colorado. And I bring that up because it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. Uh, let's just talk about toilets, for example. Um, I never thought I would be so excited about toilets, but I really am. And the reason I'm excited about toilets, uh, I'll, I'll kind of circle back and tell you why, but Toilets are, are kind of amazing in one sense that because it, it doesn't require you, the user, to do anything. I mean, you just go in and you use the toilet and you push the button or you flip the lever and, and your life goes on. There's no behavior modification. You don't have to do anything differently. All you have to do is, is the same thing that you've done for your entire life and the toilet works and everybody's happy. And as long as the toilet works, everybody's happy. So. Here's why I, I pause on toilets, because the federal standard for toilet flushing was established in 1994. And the federal standard says, as of 1994, that the maximum water a toilet can use is 1.6 gallons per flush. It, it cannot exceed that number, 1.6 gallons per flush. And that federal standard hasn't changed since 1994. But the reason I bring that up is because when Colorado became a water sense state, that 1.6 gallons per flush no longer applies here in Colorado because in order to be a water sense labeled product, the EPA water sense program has defined their standard to say a water sense labeled product must be at least 20% more efficient than other similar products out on the market that are not water sense labeled. So if you take the 1.6 gallons per flush, that's the federal standard, yeah. you reduce that by 20%, you come up with 1.28. So that's why all the toilets now that are being sold and installed in Colorado do not exceed 1.28 gallons per flush because it's based on that water sense legislation. We are starting to advance that a little more. Um, this hasn't happened yet, but I'll give you a little bit of a, a little bit of a preview of my wish list. Uh, my wish list is I want to improve the gallons per flush even more than 1.28. And I think we can do it because um, we just built this building where I am. Our, our office building where I'm located was just built last year and we moved in at the end of 2021. And here in this building, we installed all of our toilets to be 0.8 gallons per flush maximum. So literally half of the federal standard. And um, we're trying them out. You know, we're, we, we wanted to be the if we're going to try and move people in this direction, then we wanted to be able to say, yep, we know what you're doing. We have the same product here in our building. We use it every day and it works fine. And the reality is that's true. Uh, we have had no trouble 
Uh, so on a voluntary basis, what we've started is a rebate program for toilets where we've said, it's not a requirement yet, but if you want to, as a, as a, anybody, a business owner, as a, as an HOA, as an individual homeowner, if you want to replace your toilet and put in a 0.8 gallon per flush toilet, we will rebate you $100 per fixture to do that. And we will take your old toilet from you and we will then recycle it. And so it's, it's sort of a dual benefit. Benefit number one, we save water. Great. Um, how does the homeowner benefit? Well, they save water as well, because remember I told you that their indoor budget, uh, their tier one budget is based on their wintertime usage. And so now when they go from a 1.6 gallon per flush toilet or even a 1.28 gallon per flush toilet all the way down to a 0.8, their indoor consumption is going to reduce quite significantly, which also then has that dual benefit. Because remember, I also said it's directly related to their sewer charge and their sewer charge, uh, the amount of water that they're sending down the sewer is significantly less every time they flush the toilet. So their consumptive use goes down, their sewer charge goes down. We have to supply less water. We take their toilet and we recycle it, which means it doesn't go to the landfill, which is great. And so there really is no downside to that program that I can see. And yeah. sort of anecdotally, you know, I've had the opportunity to talk to everybody that's participated in this program. And when I meet them to take their old toilets and I, I take them and stockpile them for recycling, one of the questions I always ask is, okay, well, you know, this is weird because nobody ever asks you about your toilet experience, but what is your toilet experience? You know, how do you like it? And, and I would say there may be one exception. I mean, there might be one exception, but the vast, vast majority of the people will always come back and report the lower flush toilet works equally good, if not better than the one that they took out. Yeah. And, and so if it works as good or better, and it's using half the amount of water, to me, that's a win. Yeah, for sure. And toilets and I guess shower heads would be the other one that uh, is the biggest user, user experience that people anticipate being an, an issue with, uh, the water sense right. labeled of, of planes. So in the yeah. in the um, requirement, then the this town of Castle Rock has just adopted um, a state mandate, in essence, that all fixtures, shower heads, faucets, toilets uh, need to be water sense. Um, yes. Okay. Um, do you do anything with uh, pipe layout or plumbing layout to uh, reduce um, water water waste and, and potentially energy waste uh, in delivering hot water? In delivering hot water, no. Um, we are, again, this is how our program continues to evolve. One of the things that we are looking at specifically for hot water, and this is based on feedback that we get often from our residents, is some level of hot water recirculation. So yeah. 
when you obviously when you turn on the faucet you don't have to have that wait time for the water to get hot so that is not currently been implemented but it is definitely something that we are looking at uh, two different directions again i would say we're evaluating so i don't want your listeners to get in panic mode here yet but we're evaluating should we make it a requirement yes or no uh, same with toilets should we make the 0.8 gallon per flush toilet a requirement we're evaluating that question as well but back to the hot water issue hot water recirculation certainly seems to make sense and also some level of i know you mentioned briefly shower heads and faucets um, they have to be water sense labeled i would love to be able to reduce the flow on the shower head although the reality is here here's what happens a lot of times because a shower head is such a personal item you know everybody showers often i don't know how often sometimes daily sometimes every other day whatever their personal habits are but a person showers often, and, and everybody has a very personal opinion about what a shower head should do and what their showering experience should feel like. And for us, the downside to that is a shower head is very, very easy to replace. And, you know, so we could mandate something that goes in at new construction. But the reality is, if, if you, the end user, don't like it, you're going to replace it anyway. Yeah, uh, which is why I kind of always circle back to toilets because I'm not saying people can't replace their toilets; they sure could, but it's a little bit more involved than a showerhead. And and so you know the the reality is if we get a 0.8 gallon per flush toilet in their home, and it works, they're going to be happy with it because it it's not nearly as personal as a showerhead. You know, if it works, then it works, and they're going to leave it alone. Uh, shower heads are inexpensive and easy to replace, and it's a little bit more difficult to control that. Don't know if it's worth it. Yeah. Um, okay, so for indoor water, it's primarily fixtures. Uh, it's primarily, uh, it's not really, it's potentially moving towards plumbing layout issues. Um, yes is uh gray water looked at yes uh i'm glad you asked because i was going to circle back to that anyway even if you didn't ask uh gray water is looked at and for for those of your listeners that aren't i don't know who your audience is but for those of your listeners that are not familiar with it it's covered under regulation 86 uh through colorado through the state and uh, we actually have a pilot program here in Castle Rock where Lennar Homes uh, is worked with an, a gray water company, uh, Greater Water Systems is the name of the company. So um, they built 29 homes. 29 homes were all built with the Greater Water Systems gray water treatment system. I, I'm probably not doing their system justice, and so they're going to hate me for this, but I'll describe for you how it works. Yeah. Essentially, the home collects gray water from the tubs and the showers in the, in the greater system, and then it uses that for toilet flushing. So all of the water 
that was previously used for toilet flushing was potable treated drinking water where now it's not. So we're not using that potable treated drinking water to flush toilets. Now what this system does is it uses the gray water that it has collected from the tubs and the showers and uses that for toilet flushing. And so that's pretty exciting to be honest with you, because, you know, you, you figure on average, um, you know, the average home might use somewhere between 20 and 25% of their total consumption for flushing toilets. Well, now that 20 to 25% that they were using for potable water is now coming from non-potable water. And so that's 20 to 25% that no longer we have to supply. So we're fairly early in the process. The last home in that 29 home, maybe the last two are, are being built right now. They're almost done. They're almost ready to close on them. Um, all 29 homes have been sold. And I think all of them have been occupied except the last two or three. And so those last two or three are going to be occupied here very, very soon. And then what that will allow us to do as the utility is to evaluate a lot of things. How do the customers like it? Uh, what levels of maintenance are required? How does the system work? How much water do they really save? There's a lot of questions that we have, and we're going to start to evaluate those questions and come up with answers as, the, as all of these homes now go into next year. Uh, many of them, they just moved in, you know, literally over the last, we had some move in last week. Uh, so there's really no history on what they're using yet. But uh, as we move forward into next year and beyond, we'll have some real data that we'll be able to use and evaluate and see how the systems are working and how much water they really do save. But it's it's really an exciting concept. Yeah, yeah. So two questions come to mind. Um, the first is, have you heard anything with regards to installation of, of that system? And has it been costly or difficult or any anything specific for the trade partners that are having to install that? Well, the, the good news is, uh, and this is coming from Lennar, the home builder, uh, the good news is all they need is a approximately a three foot by three foot space on the floor. It, it takes up about the same amount of room as a, a furnace would or maybe a water heater would. And so it's not a additional not tank, storage tank, I, I'm guessing. I'm sorry? An additional storage tank? It is. It, it, I think it holds somewhere in the ballpark of 35 to 40 gallons of gray water. Would that and be so, in the basement furnace room or and pumped back up to the? the um... Yes. Yep. Okay. It's in, in all of these homes, um, in every one of these homes, the, the home does have a basement. Uh, they're not a crawl space type of a configuration. But uh, having a basement, everything flows through gravity uh, down through and into the gray water. And then it's pumped back out into a pressurized system. From a plumbing perspective, you wind up with three different color pipes. You wind up with, obviously, it's all packs uh, that people are using now. So uh, blue, red, and purple um, you now have because purple for the non-potable. And the purple pipe is um, pumped back exclusively to the toilets and nothing else. And then, of course, the potable water goes through the uh, blue and the red for hot and cold or 
cold and hot, blue and red. But the um, the other interesting thing about this is Greater is providing the uh, initial maintenance on the system for the first two years after the homeowner moves in. So they, they want to make sure that the system is up and running and functioning and working as it should. And uh, I have had an opportunity to follow up with uh, several homeowners out there already. And uh, by and large, they're, they're excited about it. They like it. And um, they, um, I know we're not here to talk about other energy stuff. It's more of a water-based a water conversation, but these homes also are equipped with solar. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a fairly sustainable community when it comes to both water and energy. So I like that. Great. And so the, the other um, potential outcome of this experiment is I assume that the city is evaluating whether to uh, incorporate this as a mandatory item that that new homes would have to install. Sure. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'd focus on the word mandatory. We're not there yet. Uh, we we uh, certainly are not at the point where we would say you have to do this, but we are definitely at the point where we would say, if you're building a home and you want to do this, our code allows you to do that. Yeah. Um, the way Regulation 86 works at the state level is it, it, it sets the parameters for the use of gray water. And then it says that if a local community chooses to use gray water, they have to adopt a local ordinance, which we have done. And so that local ordinance that we have done then allows for the use of gray water consistent with the parameters laid out in Regulation 86. So anybody that wanted to today could come in and they could build a new home and they could use either this system or other, I don't know how many others there are. Uh, I'm only familiar with this one because this one's uh, what Lennar is using, but um, I think there are others out there and we would allow for the use of that uh, as long as it was installed, you know, per the manufacturer's suggestion. We do have a separate level of inspections uh, that we go through on these to make sure that they are installed correctly and set up correctly. And then the other interesting thing that I really do like is that uh, the greater system is not activated initially. Uh, it's, they wait until the homeowner moves in. They give them a couple of weeks to, you know, unpack their boxes and start moving in. And, and then they set up a one-on-one -on -one sort of a, a commissioning meeting, if you will, where they commission the unit. They go through all of the features and how it works and what the user can expect. And at that point, they turn the system on. And uh, similar to the controllers, uh, irrigation controllers. I know I mentioned Wi-Fi enabled irrigation controllers. Uh, these units are also able to be monitored remotely through their Wi-Fi. So that's one of the things they do when they commission the unit is they connect it to the homeowner's Wi-Fi. And if programming uh, things need to be adjusted, uh, parameters need to be fine-tuned, that can all be done remotely. So it's so far it's worked pretty well. Great. Interesting. Um, real quick, is there Anything interesting happening in the Blackwater arena? Not here. No. I mean, the, the really short answer is no. We're not experimenting with it. We're not, there's no pilot programs. There's no studies. Uh, we're just not actively pursuing uh, Blackwater 
at this moment. I don't know. I don't know that we will. Great. Okay. Uh, and then my, I guess the last thing I wanted to discuss um, is a little bit more with regards to the water sense um, side of things. So water sense has <clears throat> this water sense program that you alluded to as well. If a builder decided to do that program for their houses, would it in itself satisfy all of the things that the the town of Castle Rock is looking for? When you when you ask the question about water sense, are you referring to the the water sense new home label or the water yes. water sense new home specification? Yes. I personally don't think that program goes far enough. I, I think it I think our current requirements, both indoor and outdoor, already exceed the water sense requirements. And so I don't know, they would not meet our requirements because it doesn't go far enough. Okay. Um, and so are you getting uh, many calls from other water districts um, with, what, with regards to the programs that you're implementing? Is what you're doing, um, unique or is it uh, being carried out, do you think, uh, across the state or potentially country? I do think that what we're doing is, if, if I could use the term, we're probably on the leading edge. Uh, we, we hear that a lot. We hear a lot of communities are reaching out to us. I've, I've recently spoken to uh, folks as far away as Montana, uh, even up in Canada, um, Texas, we've gotten calls from all over the country. And, you know, a lot of people are, are pointed toward our programs to us and our programs because they are curious, you know, they, they see us doing things that they want to do, that they want to implement, that they, they, they find them attractive and they call us or they reach out to us to find out similar to what you're doing today, just to get some personal experience, you know, the do's and the don'ts, what do we like, what don't we like, uh, what has worked, what has not worked. And, and we're happy to share those with anybody that calls. And, you know, similar to, I'll, I'll, I'll use just the outdoor requirements, uh, similar to us with the outdoor requirements, Aurora um, also just recently passed a very similar outdoor requirement where they also no longer allow turf in front yards and they also limit the turf to a maximum of 500 square feet in the backyard. Uh, the programs don't perfectly mirror each other, but they're very, very, very close. And so I think what you're going to start to see with Aurora doing their program with us in Castle Rock doing our program, I think you're going to see more and more communities that are going to be implementing something similar. They were just waiting for someone to break through and do it first. Yeah, interesting. Well, this has been really informative. Uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, willingness to, to speak to us about it. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website, www.btankinc.com Thank you Ben Sound for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it and you 
for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.